Oh, come on back. We'll resume. So um, I thought what we could do is just hear from you a little bit about uh, how that practice was for you. And then I'll segue into kind of a quick run through of some of the uh, plausible neurological underpinnings of those practices. Uh, and then Rick will take it from there and kind of do a chunk about this fundamental idea of self-directed neuroplasticity. Uh, a little bit of a housekeeping point. Uh, for one, uh, uh, if you just, uh, if you want the slides and or the newsletters, if you just give us your name and address, it'll all work out. And uh, also, as I said, we'll keep your email address private and you can unsubscribe anytime you want. So it's really easy in that way. Second, happily, uh, Spirit Rock records the talks and the practices, and then they will be posted through an organization called Dharma Seed, a wonderful organization called Dharma Seed, which um, I support. It's run by donation only, and you may want to support it yourself. And so fairly soon, uh, within a week or two, typically, the uh, practices are posted. So if you want to listen to a talk or download a practice, uh, you're very welcome to do that. They're freely offered. Okay, so would anyone like to share just how that was for you to, to work through those suggestions? Uh, if it's okay and you can just maybe stand up or speak up, we won't slow down by running a microphone. We'll just kind of keep it simple here. And I'll repeat uh, what you say uh, if necessary. So anybody want to share what happened? Please. Actually, let me interrupt you. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. You're right. I could tell immediately I was wrong. This is what 20 years of practice gets you to do. You correct, you correct mistakes quickly. Hello. You know, so it's yes. an ice cream cone. You talk right into it. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, I just recently started taking yoga, and one of the instructions from the teacher that really changed my breathing meditation was the notion of the breath being receiving, receiving either love or from the universe and, um, and then giving back. Mm. And I found in this meditation, thinking about receiving, receiving, giving, giving, it really deepened the whole breathing meditation for me and, mm -hmm. and created a kind of ease that was wonderful. Great, thank you, glad for you. Anybody else, just how it was for you? including any difficulty or anything that really helped? Right, right there. <clears throat> I don't normally do this, but I guess somewhere around feeling cared about, I actually brought in um, the image of a teacher from college, and I kept him there for about five minutes. And it was very nice because I got sort of more from him than I would have given in my own like self-care moment, so great. I like that. That's great. Good. Mm. That's great. All right, all the way in the back right there. Maybe keep your hand up so David can keep finding you. Good. Thanks a lot. Um, I'm rather new to the practice of meditation, mm. but what I find, and this is nothing personal against you, but as I get more meditative, I tend to start to fall asleep. Um, what, what are your 
recommendations for that. Oh, sure. Ah. Uh, actually, I've got something. Right. Uh, a couple of things. First off, welcome to the club. Okay, thanks. <laughs> um, I actually was sitting up here thinking, you know, I'm actually not going to do the meditation this morning with Rick because I didn't get a whole lot of sleep last night. And one of the worst things that could happen was the teacher sitting up here going, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> which I've done. <laughs> yeah. So not, not, not unusual to, to being beginner's mind. Thank you. Well, and all your T's are decaf, so that doesn't help. <laughs> um, What's wrong with this place? There, 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 is, there is a piece, and it actually a little bit relates to the previous uh, comment about breath. Um, if you are needing energy, the, the, the breath work is, the breathing is actually a very interesting thing because the sympathetic parasympathetic nervous system is divided. You activate the sympathetic nervous system, the fight-flight-fright mechanism, by inspiration. You activate the parasympathetic rest and, rest and digest side by expiration. Just an example. The saber-toothed tiger jumps out of the tree. <gasps> what have I done? I've taken in breath, I've increased my rib cage, I've gotten ready to either run like crazy or fight whatever this is that's attacking me. What happens when I want to relax? I exhale. If you're having problems with either too little energy, falling asleep, then concentrate on the in-breath in side of this. If you're having too much problems with being totally wired and uptight, flip it. Concentrate on the exhale. Okay. And it, it, you're actually driving your own autonomic nervous system that way with, in, with uh, intention and attention. So inhale with focus. You're sleepy, concentrate on the inhale side. Okay. And let the exhale go. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Some people stand up also. Yeah. Or bringing to mind maybe something that's more energizing, like uh, a sense of loving kindness could be more stimulating than just the sensations of breathing or even bringing to mind positive emotion that's also uh, energizing too. Great. All right. Thank you. Maybe another person, one more, and then we'll kind of move on. Great. Right there. Sorry about the sight lines in this room. Very One of the nice things we're going to do eventually <laughs> when we is replace this room is get rid of the pillars in the middle. But anyway, great. Uh, something that, that's been helping me this morning is to focus on the, the safety of the Sangha and Spirit Rock itself. You know, speaking to the parasympathetic, sympathetic, right? Yeah. It's out in the world. Right. right? So really... Being mindful of that really helps me to be more focused. Yes, and, thank you. And comfortable in doing the practice. Just a simple thing. Great, thank you. Well, I'll use that if I can now as a segue to talking about um, both what could well have been happening inside your brain when you were doing those different mental practices and illustrating uh, the broader point that there's a matching between mental activity and underlying neural activity that one can use skillfully by aiming at the particular kinds of neural activity that will promote the positive states of mind we're interested in, in this case, steadiness of mind. So setting an intention, uh, top-down, typically done from what's called the executive control network in the prefrontal cortex, kind of right behind the forehead, uh, it's a way of telling ourselves to uh, aim in a particular direction or other. 
and that prefront, those prefrontal circuits both regulate attention as well as emotion and certainly motivation too. And so you're giving yourself an instruction. But it's also, I think, very important to not privilege language or privilege top-down control, which has tended to be very privileged in Western culture. And, uh, perhaps gender has played a role in that as well. I think it's very important to open to and appreciate the potency of bottom-up motivation where we give ourselves over to a felt sense that's already inclined in the direction we want to go. And that is that sort of process of giving oneself over to the felt sense, the feeling of, uh, the body sensations of, the, the inactive qualities of what we're heading toward, uh, that will engage lower regions of the brain, the subcortex, and even the brainstem. Second, as Rick said, Relaxing the body brings to bear the wonderful parasympathetic rest and digest nervous system. The, um, you know, we live in a culture where sex, drugs, rock and roll, news at 11, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, right, in journalism, uh, you know, kabang, kapow, etc. What's a TV show without an exploding car in it, etc. You know, we live in that culture, but so the sympathetic wing of the nervous system, the fight or flight uh, wing, tends to get a lot of uh, attention, but it's important, I think, to appreciate, and Rick will get into this momentarily, the first wing of the autonomic uh, nervous system to evolve was its parasympathetic wing, because it's primarily important for creatures to be able to rest and refuel and repair. That's the foundation, really, of all the activations. So sympathetic arousal, in effect, is a departure from baseline. The resting state is resting. All right. And so it's hard to steady attention when we're feeling stressed, even if we're excitedly stressed, you know, uh, but it's hard to stabilize attention because uh, when we're stressed, naturally attention is scanning for threat or opportunity. So by calming the body, that's one reason why tranquility is one of the seven factors of awakening in Buddhism. Calming, peacefulness helps us whoosh, come here and be present. There are many ways into that. Um, I use two that have to do in particular with the parasympathetic nervous system. Long exhalations, as Rick said, involve the parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, If you want to take several breaths where the exhalation is roughly twice as long as the inhalation, it's really hard to have your stress meter, you know, needle zero to 10 around eight. After five of those, you know, it usually comes back around three or so if you've done five long exhalations. Also, the rest and digest nervous system begins in the mouth. So relaxing the tongue or even putting a knuckle on your lip, which I confess I will do sometimes to go to sleep. I don't suck my thumb. I draw the line. I have my dignity to preserve. But anyway. That's not what Jan says. (laughs) It's my wife. How She's talking to you, huh? Anyway. um, So parasympathetic nervous system. Relaxing. Good. All right. Next one. Uh, feeling cared about. This is a very interesting one. And this goes to my point in the beginning that there are two great wings to practice, being with and working with. And here we're talking about trying to kindle, trying to get going, trying to work with certain positive factors of mind. Feeling cared about is absolutely primal to us since exile was a death sentence in the Serengeti, right? As our ancestors evolved, feeling cared about, feeling part of the tribe, Um, and being loved, whether we're a young child or an an old child, if you will, an old person, 
Uh, in either case, we need to feel loved. That calms us, that soothes us, and it sets up the next suggestion, which is to feel safe. So in the brain, as the brain tripled in volume in the last three or so, several million years, uh, much of the build-out of the brain is devoted to social functions because of the survival advantages, really, of love, broadly defined. So we're the most profoundly social species on the planet, um, and we're the most socially dependent species on the planet uh, in terms of you know, exchanges psychologically between us and other members of our species. So uh, much of the brain is devoted to social processing. It has what's called a social engagement system in it that intertwines with a lot of very primal functions through the vagus nerve in terms of regulating the body and being um, informed by what's going on in the body. So if we help ourselves feel cared about by bringing to mind someone that loves us, could be a pet, could be a human, could be a group of people, could be a spiritual being, that's a nice way to bring some warm-heartedness to our own practice and help settle down. Which is the setup for feeling safer? Because as I said, exile is pretty scary. It's hard to focus attention when you don't feel safe. While there are some meditations that are done deliberately in unsafe environments, or that might feel unsafe, like charnel grounds or burial grounds, or on the edges of cliffs, which is a traditional way to not fall asleep, you know? Seriously, there are these various Zen stories, because Zen is, as you know, very hardcore. People, you know, meditating in tall trees and on the edge of cliffs and vowing to not get up until they're awakened and stuff like that. Um, anyway, so um, yes, that's true, but those are the exceptions that prove the broader rule, which is, it again, it's hard to steady the mind if we're scared. Because naturally, if we're scared, we're going to be vigilant. We're going to be continually scanning. Helping yourself feel as safe as reasonably can is an interesting one because for many of us, it's scary to feel safe. Because that's when you lower your guard and get nailed. So helping oneself uh, recognize protection, helping oneself recognize resources, helping oneself access a sense of strength inside, which all are, are factors of safety, recognizing that actually one is all right in this moment Notwithstanding Mother Nature's well-intended whispering lies, be afraid, you know, be hungry, be lonely, because that's a great way to keep creatures alive. As Rick will get into in a bit about evolution, we evolved to suffer and crave as a means to the end of survival. It's really quite poignant to appreciate that. Our true home is a state of mind without craving, without the craving that leads to suffering, without resisting what's unpleasant or grabbing after what's pleasant or clinging to relationships. That's our true resting state. But we're so easily, quickly driven from home by the requirements of apparent survival. And in fact, we're actually leaning away from home by Mother Nature's default because she wants us to be always a little anxious, always a little hungry, you know, scanning for opportunity, and always a little clingy or lonely because that's a great way to get ancient ancestors to be motivated to do what it takes to pass on their genes. So to have the insight, to have the falling away of delusion or ignorance, to see the truth of things, that in this moment you're actually fundamentally all right. There really is no basis for the craving that's related to a sense of threat. And in this moment you're actually full, 
They're actually fed. So there's no basis for the craving, you know, that's driven by a sense of frustration. And in this moment, you're actually connected. You're actually sufficiently loved. And to let that really sink in 10,000 times over so that there's no basis in this moment for the craving that's driven by an underlying sense of heartache, right? That's a profoundly powerful practice. And we can do that practice routinely, including in these factors of mindfulness. That's not awakening itself, but it is the gradual undoing of the underlying evolutionary neuropsychological causes of the craving that leads to suffering and harm by internalizing 10,000 times over the felt sense of being fundamentally safe, satisfied, and connected. And therefore, there's no underlying basis for the craving that leads to suffering and harm. That was a mouthful. Okay. That's a okay. Mouthful. That's so, good. next, uh, positive emotion. Um, it's interesting, as again Rick will get to with the jhana factors, it's interesting that of the so-called jhana factors, five total, applying attention, sustaining attention, rapture, joy, and singleness of mind, 40% of those, two out of five, uh, have to do with positive emotion. And there are multiple reasons for that. One is that obviously positive emotion is rewarding and motivating. So it will incline us in the direction we want to promote. In this case, steadiness of mind. But it's also the case that positive emotion intrinsically helps steady the mind. And it does, through a, does so through a mechanism that's neurologically very cool. So I'm going to kind of explain it right here. So there's a neurotransmitter, a little molecule in the brain, called dopamine that tracks rewards, okay? And so if you're feeling rewarded and positive emotion is a reward, you're going to have high levels of dopamine. If you expect a reward and you don't get it, you feel disappointed, dopamine levels drop, and you get motivated to get that expected reward. Okay. Well, in the neural substrates of working memory, the, in the upper outer frontal regions of the brain, this is kind of where one of the places where RAM, as it were, random access memory, is located, you know, in the motherboard of the brain. All right? There's a kind of gate there that regulates uh, what we're paying attention to. And so when the gate is closed, we stabilize the contents of those neural substrates of working memory, which are kind of like a big mental chalkboard or whiteboard or blackboard, if you will. Okay? So if you want steadiness of mind, if you want to just lock onto the breath or the loving kindness phrase, or you want to really stay present with your partner who's got a problem, and increasingly it's looking like you, all right? <laughs> if you want to help yourself, even though you want to get out, even though you recognize wisdom is to keep your mind in the game here, you know, is the least bad option, but anyway, uh, in that moment, you want to help yourself stay steady or pay attention in fifth grade to how to do long division. You want to keep the gate closed to the neural substrates of working memory, right? On the other hand, we need to update working memory from time to time. Rick will talk about this later. So we pop open the gate and then we, new information comes in. If we're in a distracted state, the gate's wide open and we're just kind of distracted by one thing after another. If we're steady, the gate is closed. How do we open or close the gate? It is regulated by dopamine. And the gate stays closed when there is a steady stream of dopamine, steady experience of reward. The gate pops open 
when dopamine drops and there's a violation of an expectation for reward or the stream of rewards becomes like a thin soup. And then naturally, we would look for other rewards. That would make sense, right? Or alternately, the gate pops open if dopamine levels spike. There's a sudden surge of a reward opportunity. The gate pops open and we go, oh, new reward. Imagine you're a monkey in a tree, or I am, right? Eating bananas in this tree. Steady stream of rewards. I'm only focused on my, the, the, this tree and these bananas, right? On the other hand, suppose the bananas run out in this tree, right? Dopamine levels drop, gate pops open, I'm looking around. Other opportunities, other bananas, okay? Alternately, I'm eating my bananas in this tree. It's good, life's good. And then suddenly this really cute other monkey swings onto a nearby branch. Whoop, new reward opportunity. Forget the bananas. What's your sign? You know, right? Anyway, so makes sense. It's a wonderful little gate, all right? Well, here's the thing. What happens if we're experiencing high, steady levels of positive emotion? In other words, high and steady levels of dopamine. So the steadiness keeps the gate closed, and if the levels are high, there's no possibility of a spike, because it's already at the top of range. It's already up against the ceiling of dopamine levels. So you can't get a spike then to distract yourself. That's why I think happiness, or one of the many reasons, why happiness is skillful means. Isn't that very cool? How that works? You know, I just think that's so cool. Okay. Last, uh, absorbing the benefits. Again, Rick will talk a bit about this. Uh, we evolved what scientists call a negativity bias in the brain. Uh, I call it, it's like Velcro for the negative, but Teflon for the positive. The brain is very, very good at learning from bad experiences, and it's bad at learning from good experiences. The result? Skillful means. Oh, the negativity bias? Yeah. So I'm talking about how the brain has evolved this tendency to learn well from pain and to learn poorly from pleasure, in a sense. And um, that helped our ancestors survive, but it's not very good for building up inner strengths, broadly defined. If we want to build up a positive mood, if we want to build up the capacity to steady the mind, if we want to build up uh, the insight that says that you know, clinging leads to suffering and letting go leads to happiness, whatever it is we want to build up inside, um, we want to help uh, positive experiences stick to our mental ribs. The problem is the brain's not very good at converting momentary positive states to long-lasting positive neural traits. But it's very good at turning negative mental states into long-lasting negative neural traits. So if we're interested in cultivating positive factors, causes, remember the model is processes and causes. We're trying to cultivate and grow the causes, uh, if you will, the flowers in the garden of the mind. It really behooves us, it's smart, to take an extra 10 or 20 seconds or so at a time to take in the good to help these positive mental states stick to our neural, neurological ribs, if you will. And that's where doing little things where we just stay with a positive experience, 5, 10, 20, or more seconds in a row, we let it become as intense as possible, we feel it in our body as much as possible, we might even see that it's novel, maybe we also see personal relevance. 
These are five known factors that promote learning. We're talking about emotional learning here. Intensity, duration, uh, multimodality, whole body, uh, novelty, and personal relevance. Those are the big five that just help anything stick to us. So the more that we cultivate that, and in fact as well, prime memory systems, by intending and sensing that we're absorbing it, that it's sinking in, then we can help ourselves learn from our experiences in really, really useful ways. So that's the sixth factor there of steadiness of mind, including the internalization of what it feels like to have a steady mind altogether. Okay. So any questions or comments about what I've said, and then I'll segue over to Rick. Yeah. I'll repeat it, but yeah. Okay, good. David will bring you the mic. Want to start over if you don't All mind? Right. Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, isn't this the uh, same thing that you talk about in some of your books about um, neurons that fire together, wire together? Right. And um, uh, I use this a lot with my clients um, who have uh, a tendency for negative thoughts and they believe that they can never change and they'll never be happy. And so I, I use that phrase, you know, uh, I, I have a, a whiteboard and I write on it and I show them how it, that, that their pattern of thinking has been negative and so they have these neural pathways in their brain that they've created that they continue to fall into mm -hmm. that rut. Mm -hmm. right. And so what their job is to uh, create new positive pathways mm -hmm. so, that they, uh, so that they have a more of a tendency to fall into good thinking. That's great. Um, yeah. and da I, Daniel Amon refers to those, those thoughts as ants, automatic negative thoughts. Ants. And that the process of therapy <laughs> is a little bit like going to get some insecticide. Yes, yes. Well... But that's looking at it in a negative way. In a positive way, we're, we're trying to create new positive like neural pathways. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Sorry. Thank you. Well, that's good. It's exactly right. No, I appreciate that. And um, the phrase she used, neurons that fire together, wire together, comes mm -hmm. from the work of the Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb, who actually did work in the late 40s uh, on this right. territory. Maybe another person or two? Yeah. Um, I'm wondering about the amygdala hippocampus. Isn't that also the seat of intuition and um, some people see, say even awareness itself? So it's sort of interesting that it also has an alarm. Could you comment on that? I right. Okay, so she says, she's bringing up, you probably heard, um, the amygdala hippocampus. Is that uh, the seat of intuition or even awareness itself? A couple comments here about this. First, um, the brain works together, all these parts. We use 100% of our brain. Mother Nature would not evolve an organ that consumes 20 to 25% of the oxygen and glucose, the metabolic supplies in our blood, even though it's only 2 to 3% of body weight, if we did not need the whole thing. So the whole brain works together. On the other hand, there is what's called some localization of function. Different parts of the brain tend to specialize in various things. So it's in that context I'll respond here. All right? So you might be thinking of what traditionally was called, I believe, the pineal gland as maybe the seat of intuition or awareness itself. Don't know. Um, 
the whole brain pretty much produces awareness or particularly major regions of it working together. Uh, particularly ordinary awareness compared to let's say being asleep or anesthetized for surgery, something like that. Mm -hmm. The amygdala and hippocampus, they register positive experiences. The hippocampus is particularly involved in making memories, especially personal memories. Uh, but the amygdala in particular, on average, is pretty biased toward the negative. Although new research is showing that you can gradually sensitize it and right. train it to become a joyful amygdala, as one of these scientists call it. I want to have a joyful amygdala, but anyway. So, um, so I would say that about awareness. And then last, intuition, it kind of depends on how you mean that. And that lets me make a big point here, which is um, it could well be the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence in a science thing. It could well be that there are transcendental X factors that are involved in consciousness, mental processing, or even the lowly ant. There may well be, you know, and um, the two of us, I'm probably a bit more of a transcendentalist than Rick is, although there's an openness there. That said, we're going to stay inside the naturalist frame. Right. We're going to stay inside the frame of Western science here, uh, kind of an empirical frame, if you will. So I'm going to use the word intuition in that way. I'm not going to refer to intuition as a kind of um, receipt of something transcendental outside the frame. Okay. Well, the whole brain really does get involved in intuition altogether in an interesting way. Often what happens is people grind away on something, usually typically more left hemisphere, sequential, often language-driven processes, and then they tend to pop out into some kind of right hemisphere processing that's more, for most people, holistic, global, gestalt processing, and then they they get an insight, and then they come back to the left hemisphere to try to implement it, which in a certain kind of way, and I'll wrap on this point, reminds me of the Tibetan saying, which I think of sometimes, uh, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, mm -hmm. sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, in a great circle. So I think, um, maybe I'll put it like this, Gurdjieff, you know, the teacher Gurdjieff, uh, he said psychedelics were like a telescope. They showed you what was possible, but then you had to get there on your own. And I think in some ways we will have an insight in practice, you know, like, wow. But then we need to backfill. We need to work with the infrastructure behind it to kind of stabilize it, to wake down, not just up, as Samuel Bonder puts it, um, uh, and implement and bring into our life increasingly our insight. So that was a long answer to a pithy question. Well, how about if it's okay we move on? Alas, uh, we should do that for time. And again, Rick and I will happily stick around at breaks uh, and at lunch a bit uh, to see if you have comments or so on. And uh, Rick will take it away here now that we've sort of illustrated some of the ways in which mental activity can work underlying neural factors. He'll lay a bigger foundation in self-directed neuroplasticity. Thank you. Self-directed neuroplasticity. Uh, I think, actually, let me flip back to the previous one. I look at this and I said, okay, how to communicate what this, what, what this might mean in a somatic way. Um, learning to ride your spiritual bicycle. You think about when you, when you, when you rode a bicycle. Um, and think about the fact that right now, you may, none, some of you may not have gotten on a bicycle in years, but if the only way back home was a bicycle, I would bet almost everybody here who learned how to ride a bicycle could get on the bicycle and ride home. Now, could you have done that had you never learned to ride a bicycle? No.
because you'd go down, you'd go down the road, boom. So the, this, this neuroplasticity thing is reality. This neurons that wire, that wire, fire together, wire together, Donald Hebb, actually means something in terms of structural changes in the brain that can be permanent even if not used for a long stretch of time. So there's this whole piece in here about self-directed neuroplasticity that kind of gives you hope for setting the grounds for things that will persist through your life. Now, this is evolutionary history in a nutshell, right, right hemispheric, visual, spatial, two seconds summary. Um, first off, I think one of the things we have to remember is that this is, this is sort of a visual summary of millions and millions and millions of years of evolution during which genes that coded for what we would now in the Buddhist frame call dukkha survived because they were of some benefit to the organism. Not only does the, the, does the, the genetic in, in uh, evolutionary environment select for a three-pound object that consumes 20% of your oxygen and blood supply, um, but not only does it do, does it do that, it's, it's done that all the way along the line. So it, it, all of the things that exist here exist for a reason. They were, they've persisted for a reason. And things that, for the most part, uh, are not useful to our organism will drop, will drop away. And that's important because if, that I'll, I'll show you in a, in a visual slide here in a minute. So if you think about this, we're, we have a core reptilian or... Uh, early, early you know, motile organism brain, somewhere beyond the ants, which have a much more, a much more primitive sense. Around that is what's called a paleomammalian for the small mammals that uh, only gained supremacy when the reptilian part got nailed by the asteroid 65 million years ago. Um, and then above that, a neomammalian, which is all the higher order uh, mammals, um, including things like elephants, uh, hippopotami, cetaceans, and primates. Uh, and there are a number of functions that go along with this. So we'll go to the next one. So you know, the, the three stages of brain evolution in the reptilian, which are structures called the brainstem, the cerebellum, hypothalamus, and basal ganglia. These are structures. Brainstem is responsible for the reticular activating system that, that regulates your sleep-wake cycle. Actually, if you cut that out, you're, you're, you're technically dead. So that, that's a, it's absolutely essential. Some pieces of the cortex are not, but the brainstem you absolutely need. Cerebellum is an onboard computer for making sure that this is a coordinated, coordinated action and that I don't dump the water on the, on the, uh, on the, the rug. Hypothalamus is the highest end of the control over your hormonal system. Hypothalamus, pituitary, and then to the other endocrine organs in your body, such as the thyroid, the, uh, the uh, uh, genitalia, and the uh, adrenal glands, for example. And the basal ganglia is also a motor control system that allows you to have coordinated movements. Disorders of basal ganglia in human beings result in things like Parkinson's, Huntington's, uh, chorea, various kinds of uh, uh, jerking movements. What's the characteristic of the response of a brainstem, cerebellum, hypothalamus, basal ganglia kind of structure? It tends to be 
reactive and, full and reflexive. If, you, if you've watched you know, a lizard here, you know, or a frog, here, come, here comes the fly. It comes into some level of awareness. You know, tongue goes out, fly's gone. It's a reactive, reflexive, here, there, and gone. There's not some kind of plot on the frog's part to go sit by the water and wait for 16 months for the enlightened fly to show up and be gobbled down for lunch. And it mostly tends to avoid hazards. It's, if you look at the programming of this, it's mostly withdrawal, it's reflexive, uh, it tends to be something that jerks away from noxious stimuli. Rule one in the wild is eat lunch today, don't be lunch today. Yeah, don't be lunch today. And, and, that, and that's the piece, that's one of the things about the, only the genes that, that coded for dukkha survived because the opportunities to eat lunch happen infrequently. The opportunities for somebody else to make you lunch uh, happen a lot more often in, in that kind of an environment. Now, the mammalian system. Here, you talk about basically the limbic system. The limbic system is that part of the brain. It's the amygdala, hippocampus, the cingulate, which is an area of cortex on the mid, in the medial portion, inside middle portion of the cerebral hemispheres, just above the communication called the corpus callosum that connects the two hemispheres. There's a cingulate cortex here, it's on the inside. We'll show you some pictures of, of that in a little bit later. And early cortex on the outside, relatively smooth, not terribly complicated, but basically structures that allowed the, the brain there to establish some kind of sense of memory, emotion, social behavior. Uh, the frog really doesn't, you know, the frog and the, and the lizard really don't need a whole lot of memory. They're operating on sort of, sort of you know, uh, targets of immediate opportunity and they don't need to remember that this waterhole contains the lion or this waterhole contains water at this time of year. The establishment of the limbic system here allows you to remember things, allows there to be a circuit that will begin to take experience and lay it down along with the emotional tone of that experience. You know, Rick talked about the amygdala. Is, is, it, the amygdala really is kind of the Velcro organ for, for emotional experience. It's about 70% loaded for negative. If you actually look at the, at the numbers of neurons and what certain kinds of experiences of the organism is having versus the number of neurons that get activated. So about 70% of your typical amygdala um, that has gone through a standard life experience that goes to the thing of can you make a joyful amygdala. About 70% of an amygdala that's gone through a standard life experience is going to be loaded for, I don't like that, in some various permutation. Um, but, and, but the whole idea here is to attain rewards. In, in other words, I remember this is, therefore I'm going to be able to go get. So if you, if you look at... Uh, what the, the, the major characteristic of, of suffering is that we want to avoid painful and attain positive. That, that goes right back in, that's like literally a first noble truth phenomenon. Right there in that reptilian and mammalian system. Um, there's an interesting book I'd refer you to, it's about eight or nine years old now, uh, called The Feeling of What Happens by Antonio Damasio. He's the chair of the neurology department at Iowa, and he talks about where does self start showing up? And where's that first awareness in the body of where anything that might be considered as self-awareness starts showing up? And it happens in the dance 
between the brainstem cerebellum hypothalamus basal ganglia and the limbic system. Somewhere where that kind of comes in and you get an internal felt sense of what's happening in my body. That's the first point where you really begin to see I, me, mine. And so that, from the standpoint of those of us engaged in Buddhist practice where clutching onto I, me, mine is a bad idea for reasons that we have learned, that's the kind of the level of where this starts to happen. Um, now the interesting thing for the difference between some of the paleomammalian species and the higher order primates like us uh, and the, some of the cetaceans is the development of this massive, massive cerebral cortex. In the paleomammalian species, the cortex is just a simple sheet. In us, it's folded and convoluted and it looks like a dried up raisin because you get more area, you get more area of neurons, you can pack more neurons into a tighter space if you start, if you start folding it. Here's where you get abstract thought, language, cooperative planning, empathy. Think of, think of, the, of the, the brain in the human as a giant simulation machine. It's a if this, then that, if this, then that, if this, then that. Oh, that happened, therefore this must be, and I can think about that tomorrow, and all of us, Last night at 2 o'clock in the morning when you woke up and you started thinking about this, this project or what happened at work yesterday or what my kid is doing or, you know, begin to run the top 40, you're doing this whole simulation device. Now, here's where the, the function of this is beginning to attach because in this social, uh, in this cooperative behavior, planning, a sort of a sense of other, in the cortex, the first time we start to see a theory of mind, I look at you and I see somebody that is thinking certain thoughts and I begin to read visual observations uh, off of the facial expressions of others. Just as, just as an aside, what ha if, you, if you look at people uh, who, have either uh, who have either Parkinson's or Botox, or have been Botox, there are two very interesting that things that happen when you, when you look at them which is they're, they're, the, the, the mind begins to disappear. Women who have Botox do really, really well on a two-dimensional object of the TV screen. They look younger, they look more attractive. If you see them in real life, they look younger but less attractive because they're not all these little fine, funny little movements that communicates that there is somebody back there. So this, this, so this you know, and the same kind of thing happens with a Parkinson's patient. Parkinson's patients come in, and what do we look at? How are you doing? I'm fine. Yeah. And it's a monotonic. There's no communication of, of an internal emotional piece. And we as human beings depend on those kind of communications uh, to pick up the internal, the internal sense of somebody else. And that actually happens at a tremendous distance. If you, if you are sitting way in the back of the room, you're reading my emotional state. We have the capacity to literally tune into that in a very tight way. And why would that, why would that make sense evolutionarily? Well, if your fear, is, if what I see on your face is fear, I may need to look at the leopard back there that I'm not aware of. You know, and so there's this communication going on. And this is why you walk into a room and can feel the energy, because you can pick up on what everybody's face is going on. So this whole simulation thing is, is, is ongoing. Now, this whole thing is, as Rick said a little earlier, this whole thing doesn't happen in separate boxes. This happens as a unified whole. This thing is dancing all the time. 
so that what you get in, an emo in, in any particular mind moment of experience is something boiling up from the brainstem or some re remembered experience that has some relationship to what just happened. Uh, the, the metaphor we have used in here before is the, uh, the aroma of chocolate chip cookies and that immediately goes to grandma. Uh, which then takes me immediately, you know, that memory goes to grandma, and I liked grandma, but that went to granddad who threw me out one day. And so you can see how memories go boink, 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 boink. And this dance happens mind moment by mind moment by mind moment. Uh, and just to give, you an, to give you an analogy, how many of you have looked at what happens to a mouse on the computer screen? Your computer mouse, the little arrow thing? As you, track it as you track it across, as you're moving it to go click you know, from this thing to that thing to the other. If you watch the mouse on the computer screen and you look just at the mouse, it remains the same mouse. Okay, It always looks like this little arrow thing. If you look just at the computer screen and you track you know, the blue screen and you track the mouse back and forth, you see mice. Okay, And why, why is that? That's because you, have, you, you, you get a picture right there of, how, of how, how long a mind moment is. As you go whoop and you see 10 mice, that's, you know, that's 10 mind moments as that, as that mouse went by. That's an actual thing that you can do on your way home tonight, you know, when you get home, of proving to yourself how short a mind moment is. And this whole system is, 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 and what's happening is that this system is operating is, as kind of an electrical resonance chaotic system. It's dancing up and down, is dancing from side to side, and is trying to decide what that next mouse is supposed to look like. And so your, ne your next mind moment, the mouse may be green, the following may be yellow, the following may be red, the following may be purple, on all those little mice that are going across because of what the state was just right there. And that, and that actually goes to some people, when, when you're actually in deep sense of meditation, you can actually watch the thought, the thought bubbles start to arise. You can begin to catch them just as they happen because you get quiet enough that you begin to see the separation between these things. You go, you go from a, th a 3D version of, um, of Avatar to the Charlie Chaplin movie. Because you've, you've slowed yourself down and you begin to see that life is actually not some unified whole, but it's actually a whole bunch of little segments. And, it's and each one of those is, a, is, an in, is an incarnation into the next moment. So for that, for me, is the biological definition of, of reincarnation. I incarnate into the next mind moment, one after one of the other. Now, as Shogun Trungpa says, uh, when he was asked about what happens with reincarnation and what goes forward, he says, I was, uh, I'm afraid to tell you it's your bad habits. <laughs> so what your brain has been set up to do electrically by years and years of experience by riding certain particular emotional bicycles will incarnate into that next mind moment. But by changing the programming, you have the opportunity to change what incarnates. And that is a real life, real time kind of phenomenon. And there is the hope in the neuroscience to make that happen. Okay, that's a lot to digest. So this is one way to look at this. You know, you sit, you're, you're sitting in your personal cubicle or your personal Zafu, and you have cerebral cortex stuff over here, which is all the, the verbal stuff I've just downloaded onto you. There's this pleasure pain center amygdala stuff, which is, I wish you'd stop talking. Uh, and down at the bottom is the lizard brain stuff, which is, let me out, let me out, let me out. 
Um, and I, you know, I, I was, this, this cartoon, actually, I, I, I really like this because one of the things is, we, the, for those of you who can't see the back, with all due respects, I find your disparaging remarks about the reptilian brain unnecessary. <laughs> and I, I think what we have to do, we have to bow to the reptilian brain because other, without the reptilian brain, we're not here. Okay? And there are, there, there's a value in what the reptilian brain tells you. Um, because somewhere in, the, in that reptilian brain is the beginnings of the understanding of who I am and what my internal state is and what's the internal state of my body. And if you pay attention to the, to the reptilian brain and don't let it rule, but don't let it rule you, you learn a great deal about who you are right at that time. Excellent. Uh, And so this is, this is where you think, and then, well, yeah, go ahead and go to the next one. This is, this, this is, the, one, this is the one slide for everybody just before lunch. <laughs> those, of, those of us who, uh, who work as epileptologists and do brain mapping rec, uh, recognize this is basically a bunch of folded cortex. This is actually, uh, this is on an autopsy specimen, but this is what the brain looks like. That's about the right color. And if you, and if you, and for those of you who are thinking about going headbanging at the, at the uh, um, at the next big heavy metal concert, remember that the brain is the consistency of tofu. So this may be hard, but what's inside ain't. So there's a certain deal of respect that needs to happen. Okay, next one. So we've sort of gone a, a lot, I've thrown a lot at you, but the bottom line in terms of this riding your spiritual bicycle, mental activity sculpts neural structure. What, flo what flows through your, brain, your mind sculpts your brain. So immaterial experience leaves material traces behind. Uh, immaterial, immaterial experience. You're li listening to me, the sentences that flow out of my mouth and into you. There's no substance there. You can't, I can't grab that word that just left my mouth. There's a vibrational energy that goes through the air. It's translated through your ears into something re resembling language, and hopefully what I said is what you hear. Uh, so that's an immaterial experience. It leaves material traces behind. There will be a synaptic, there'll be synaptic discharges that will register those, th that encoded into language. And then it will then, because neurons that fire together create new synaptic connections and create more, create faster synaptic connections. One of the things that you need to know in terms of the size of the brain, it really didn't get a whole lot bigger after about 200,000 years ago. And the Neanderthal brain is the same size as ours. But what happened in terms of human evolution probably relates to the synapses. There's probably been more evolutionary restructuring of the synaptic connections between one cell and another. Do, do people understand what I mean by synapse? Anybody say no? Okay. Little connections between neurons. Right. One neuron comes up, stops. There's a release of chemical that goes to the next neuron is, is the, these chemicals bind to sites on that neuron and that neuron is either inhibited or, or excited. And there's all kinds of different sophistication in the, in the synapses in humans that is not present in lower order primates. And we think that that's probably one of the reasons we're, we're capable of doing things. Um, neurons that fire together wire together. In addition, neurons that ain't used are pruned. There's a very interesting thing that happens somewhere in developmental neurobiology. Somewhere around age 12, you probably have more neurons than you're ever going to have in your life. And then what happens is that the neurons that are not encoded into your, uh, into your particular culture atrophy and go away. 
A really good example of that is the learning of language and the development of an accent. If you learn a language before age seven, uh, you do not have an accent. You have the accent of the native speakers of the tongue from which you learned it. After age seven, you always have an accent of your original primary language. And the difference can be easily seen in old videotapes about Henry Kissinger and his brother. Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State, always made me think that we had had Heinrich Himmler come to... <laughs> My politics is leaking out again, sorry. Uh, but he, he, you know, he had this German, he had this very Germanic accent. He was nine. His brother was six. His brother has no accent whatsoever. When and they came here. When yeah. they came here. Mm. And so he, so he, you know, despite his intelligence, despite his abilities, despite his incredible ability to speak and use the English language in, in actually what I think were very effective and beautiful ways, he always retained an accent when he, when he spoke because he had neuronal pruning. Changes in the excitability of individual neurons due to activity, the synapses become more, more capable of firing. Increased blood flow, synapses use all, most of the energy in the brain. That's where most of the metabolic action is happening, is in the generation of transmitters, the response to transmitters, and the, the reuptake of neurotransmitters. The in, existing synapses get strengthened, and you build new synapses, uh, which that occurs all the way through your life which is why we as a species can learn things at age 90 and develop new, develop new, new abilities long after more primitive organisms have just kind of turned over and wiggled. And there's observable, th observable thickening of cortical layers in pieces of brain that are used. And that's, and that's seen in learning a new language at age 50, learning to play the piano at age 50. There are changes in the way that the, that the brain that the brain. Uh, structural, the structure of the brain as a consequence of, of our behavior. Therefore, your experience matters, both for how it feels in the moment, which is what we did with the, the short little meditation before, and also for the lasting residues it leaves behind, woven into the fabric of your being, setting you up for the consequences of future behavior, and influencing not only you, but everyone around you, and through processes both genetic and behavioral, into generations beyond. So this is, this is really critical stuff. Okay, we have, we have, we have some pictures of functional MRI scans and, um, and this thing. This is, uh, this is a beautiful picture. This is of a, a uh, uh, monk uh, meditating on, uh, uh, in, basically on a, a focused, concentrated meditation, way deep in meditation. Now this, is, this area that's in, that's in uh, orange is the anterior cingulate cortex. Step down here. Anyway, you see this, this thing right here, the sort of whitish thing looks like a C pointed downward. That's the corpus callosum. That's the thing that, collects, that connects the left and the right hemisphere. Just above it is the cingulate cortex and it's not any one particular area of brain is sort of that region. So the cingulate includes that fold here, which is the dark place, this gyrus, which is an uptick of the, of the cortex, and maybe some of that. So it's, it's a region of brain, say, oh, about a, a thumb, two thumbs width wide, going from the front of the, of the corpus callosum to the back. That anterior cingulate 
is an area for somebody who is actually way deep into pure focused attention. And what you're looking at here is this is the area that, that metabolically is, is active. The rest of the brain is relatively quiescent. So here's somebody who's completely uh, uh, into the focused attention on the breath. So this is somebody or who's uh, focused attention on some object of meditation, very way deep into a jhana state. And, and this is the kind of anatomy that shows up. This is duplicable between multiple, multiple, multiple meditators. This is not just this one person. You can see this in, and it's not just this one practice. So you see this in Tibetan monastics. You see this in, um, in nuns uh, who are doing meditation of, of oneness with, the, with Christ on the cross. A little visual activity happening up here, but the same piece of anterior cingulate lighting up and the rest of the brain relatively shut down, not dealing, not dealing with uh, uh, being distracted by other, kind, other kinds of phenomena. And, that, the, and this area of the, of the brain, part of the salience reward circuit that Rick was talking about in terms of dopamine, and also part of a norepinephrine-mediated circuit that regulates focused attention and some kind of sense of brightness or enlightened awareness. It's an interesting thing when you talk about norepinephrine. People talk about a brightening when norepinephrine is, is, um, is uh, enhanced. Antidepressants that tend to increase norepinephrine uh, uh, titers in the, in the brain. The experience as reported by the patients who are on these is that they feel brighter. And I think our use of the language is not, uh, is not a mistake. So there's a, there's a sense of a... Uh, an enlightened or a uh, brighter quality to it. Which is very focused. So, how would the brain look different? Would it be active in other parts of the brain, not such a individuated? Okay. How, how, do, okay how's, how does the creative this, process differ from this one? Yeah, in the sense of everything you've talked about, mm -hmm. I've experienced creatively in that zone, that absolute presence right. and concentration, um, and always returning there. Mm -hmm. So how does the brain look different? Um, is there more content? Is it busier in other parts? Probably. So not as relaxed and Probably. I, I, want to go, I want to take your question, and the question was given about intuition a little bit earlier, and kind of meld these together. Because I think Rick's comment, talking about you work and work and work on something, and then you move out and something else pops up. You'll, note, you'll notice uh, the two hemispheres work a little bit differently. The left hemisphere tends to be the linear, sequential, bonk, 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 bonk. The right hemisphere, or the non-dominant hemisphere for language, because it can be the left hemisphere in left-handed people. The non-dominant hemisphere for language tends to be more visual, spatial, tends to be more gestaltic. Um, a lot of the creative insights that people have are not linear language things. They're, oh, I got the, this other picture. So something else happens. In this state, this is a relative activity. It's not that, these, that this gray area of brain ain't working. It's just not really churning out 
uh, is not burning the sugar as fast as, as the orange area is burning. And that's true for every functional MRI you see. It's a relative activity. It's so, about 3% more active yeah. is all, but it's a difference that makes a difference compared to the rest of the brain. Right. And so the rest of the brain is out there, and maybe what you have done in terms of both the intuitional experience and in the creative experience is that you suppressed your usual customary pathway. Usually if I think X, then Y, then Z. Well, if I suppress the X, Y, Z reflex in my thought process, and I'm just paying attention to X, 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 H. Where the hell did that come from? <laughs> and it's because X is connected to H through various other kinds of circuits, and also it shows up. Now, if that's relevant to your creative question, like, like the guy who was looking into the fire thinking about how to come up with the benzene ring and all of a sudden saw snakes and they linked up together and all of a sudden said, oh, that's how benzene is organized. Um, you know, it, if it's relevant to your question, the brain takes that intuitional sort of little mind thought bubble and goes, boink, grabs it, and attaches it to the problem on which you're working. And so intuition is this simulation machine running, 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 and getting f sort of semi-little blips of other kinds of experiences and then comparing them to what's going on right now and having an, oh, that might work, kind of sense. Um, so this is, a, this is a state phenomenon. This is somebody in a, in, a, in, a, in a functional MRI machine in a particular state for literally a short period of time. Not only is it 3% activity, you're looking at a sum total of about uh, maybe two, three com complete minutes of mental activity over about a half hour of imaging. Okay? You're averaging positions where the, patient, where the, the, the uh, examinee says, yes, I'm in it, versus time that they're not. And they go back and forth, and they do comparison. So this is, this is a total state phenomenon. Let's, let's look at a trait phenomenon. These are some people um, who have meditated for a period of time, and they're looking at cortical thickness. Okay? These are people who have meditated. The age, this is an age down here between 20-year-olds and 50-year-olds. And the blue squares are people who meditate. The red squares, circles. the blue circles are, are people who meditate, and the red squares are people who didn't. These are some areas in the cortex, and it's not necessarily germane exactly where they are, but these areas of the cortex, and they're largely, this one particularly is involved in the limbic system, is around the amygdala, uh, they, they're demonstrably thicker. In the, in the, what does thickness in the cortex mean? It means synaptic connections. A millimeter of cor increased the cortical thickness, um, and this is in, uh, millimeters here, a millimeter of cortical thickness means millions and millions and millions of synaptic connections. So your, your the ability of that piece of cortex to process information becomes exponentially more sophisticated, becomes much more talented in doing things. This is a, everybody ever heard the 10,000 hours thing? If you want to be a world-class expert in something, you do it for 10,000 hours. And that, there's, there's little magic about that in terms of, of human behavior. You know, if you think about that, it's like three hours a day for 10 years. If you, if you, do, the, if you do the math to give you an idea about how, what kind of, of uh, diligence, ardency, resolution, and mindfulness has to be applied to become a world-class meditator. Okay. 
I want to interject, though, about that. Because um, I've thought about that 10,000 hours, and it didn't take me 10,000 hours to learn to ride a bike very competently. Right. Or brush my teeth. Right. You know, or not interrupt my wife. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> didn't take 10,000 hours. Right. And I'm uh, uh, still learning, you yeah. know. But. That, goes, <laughs> that, goes back, that goes back to that 80-20 rule, and I'm, I'm going to continue to learn on that one. Uh, so that goes back to 80-20 rule, which is that if you, if you do study, there are really solid studies on meditators showing that eight weeks of one, of one meditation session yeah. per day for eight weeks causes signif statistically significant changes in brain function. Yeah. It's, 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 not like you, it's not like you're doomed to go do a two-month retreat before you're going to get anywhere. Yeah, so every little bit helps. I mean, how many of you, just to kind of get a sense in the room, Meditate, uh, including prayer, one minute or more a month. Okay? We're okay? All right, no more personal questions. Yeah, it's a low bar. And the point is, you know, there's a dosing effect. Uh, in this study, these were not perfect meditators. They were like us, you know, 20 minutes one day, one minute the next right. day, 45 right. minutes, skip, skip, right. 20 minutes, right. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just this more. Is, this, this, is the, this is the householder path to enlightenment. That's right. For those who, who, who those who believe that you have to be a monastic, this is the householder path. Yeah. It actually works. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Great. So why mindfulness matters? Uh, remember, we went through attention is like a spotlight illuminating what it rests on, um, because this neuroplasticity and these changes in synapses, the change in cortex, is heightened for what we pay attention to. Attention is like a vacuum cleaner. It brings in whatever you're looking at, internal experience or external experience into the brain and makes it more of the constant reflexive Chogyam uh, Trungpa's bad habits that gets incarnated into that next mind moment. So directing attention skillfully, the essence of mindfulness, is therefore a fundamental way to shape the brain and one's life over time. In addition to the, the, the finally, the education of attention would be the education par excellence, William James. Not, you know, that was before most of the Buddhist literature got to the, the West. So we've arrived at this, we, we in the West have arrived at a similar parallel kind of idea long before the Buddhist uh, Dharma showed up in any major content. And the other, the other piece on this is that you're going to do this spotlight vacuum cleaner thing anyway. You're doing it now. You've done it for the, for the entire time you've been on the planet. This whole piece about directing it skillfully is the possibility of influencing where you're going to be down the road. So, sure. This, of course, is the is the, the Bay Area version of this. So, in your mind's browser, clear your cache. Now, delete your history. Now, navigate to a blank web page. I had someone send this to me. I had to do it. It's a great cartoon. It's just a great cartoon. So do you want a, maybe a question or two, and then we'll do a practice here? Can you hear me without the mic? Yeah, I can. Would you say there is neuronal overriding if you have one experience and then at some point later or time you have a different experience with a similar activity? Over, overridden or overwritten? There's two different. Overridden. 
the question was, it is, I'm going to see if I can get it out. If, if I'm wrong, correct me. If you have two experiences which share a, which are similar, are the, neur are the, the neurons that were involved in the previous experience overridden by the subsequent experience? Is that correct? Yes, in terms of what's encoded. In terms of what's encoded then. Yes, yep. and actually there's some, there, uh, there's a really neat way in which this is, uh, goes to the way that memory is coded, memory is recalled. Recalling something, having a memory, is not a passive process. The brain doesn't remember the exact details of what it was like to have pancakes at age 12 in you know, Farmington, New Mexico. That's mine. Uh, what the brain does is take the pillars of that experience, Farmington, New Mexico, pancakes, age 12, a couple of other things, and it paints it in. And that active that's an active process. It requires a lot of neuronal real estate to paint in the memory. What it'll remember is certain little pieces of it and then pa and paint the rest in. Now, when that memory is stored back, stored back, so I have recalled eating pancakes at age 12. When I put that memory back into storage for long term, it goes with me sitting up here right now. So all, so all of you are now part of my age 12 pancake experience the next time I recall it. And that's actually an active uh, process that requires protein synthesis, glucose, synaptic transformation. Because it, and it's been proven in rats that if you have them recall uh, a maze and then inhibit protein synthesis at just the moment right after they've recalled the maze and run it successfully, they completely forget the maze. So that it is, it is, it's, it's at that point that where the where you've gone into the experience and you've recalled it, that memory is not stable. It gets laid down with whatever's happening right now. So this is another fire together, wire together thing. It's also, if you think about it, the biological and neurophysiological substrate for therapy. If you go in with a therapist with whom you have a great deal of trust, who has a great deal of compassion, and you feel secure and you recall the traumatic event which has caused you to go into therapy in the first place. It goes back into memory and your therapist comes along. And that positive experience gets laid in. Now, this may be a terrible traumatic experience. It may take your therapist a whole lot of visits to show up in that memory. But time after time after time after time, repeated with enough intensity, and the taking, the, taking in the good kind of thing that Rick was talking about earlier, that particular piece changes the, val changes the valence of that memory so that it is no longer perhaps quite as painful to recall. Can be available to be dealt with in a more rational manner. No longer takes the reptilian brain and makes it rule you. Maybe one more person? Uh, one a, few call. Ago, a few weeks ago, the news um, said that in, in Britain um, there was a new diet that it eat 500 calories two days a week, and the rest of the week, eat anything you want, it's going to increase brain activity. So my question is, how does nutrition or fasting affect brain activity? Do we have another day? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, for, it's actually well known that fasting and a minor amount of caloric deprivation has effects on the brain in such a way that, that the brain survives longer and actually stays 
uh, lives with a greater degree of integrity. F people who fast one day a week tend to wind up living a longer period of time. And, and uh, now, as to whether or not, um, whether or not that actually affects the brain, you know, or how that actually dials down into talking about what kind of transmitters are affected, that I don't actually know. But my, my expectation is that that particular kind of process of fasting and going into some case, case of voluntary deprivation willfully engaged in and willfully maintained with attention and with awareness changes the way that that, ex, that experience is, is held by the brain. And the nutritional aspects, probably you change your... Uh, you probably change your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access. You probably change the way that your body handles sugar. You probably induce enzymes that go a long way toward metabolizing fat in a more efficient manner. Those kinds of things. Your brain, by the way, is a completely glucose-dependent organ. So what has to happen if you go on a fast is that your, your, your body has got to go metabolize anything it can to create glucose out of it, a process called gluconeogenesis which happens in the liver mostly. And it's got to go and make lots of sugar to ship north. So you know, prolonged fasting re results in you know, an actual trauma to the brain and a different kind of stress response. But that two-day thing, it's an interesting quirk. My, ten my tendency on diets, regular diet, you know, minimal supplements except where absolutely necessary, that's all your brain really needs. And because we evolved to really pretty much serve the, the, the rest of our body evolved to serve this organ because that's what our, that's, this, is our, this, is, this is our evolutionary success point. This is the only thing that, ma that makes us the successful species that we are. We ain't very fast. We're not very strong. Uh, you know, we don't have teeth and claw. We have a simulation machine that keeps us from getting into trouble. And that, that, that's our strength. Well, um, you can see why I said in the very beginning that it's very easy to get into a lot of discussion about this kind of material, and it tends to crowd out practice. So I thought we could crowd in some practice right now, uh, do a practice. Um, I'll explain it in a moment, and then we'll slide into lunch, okay? Uh, and I can also tell you that after lunch, uh, we'll uh, have a higher uh, proportion of internal experiential uh, practices uh, to, you know, uh, verbiage from the front of the room. Okay, so I'm going to make a little point here kind of quickly, which is to summarize a chunk of material these days, it looks like, among other networks in your brain, that there's a distinction between networks that run in the middle of the brain that are very involved in, they tend, the, front or, the frontal portions of them tend to be involved in task-focused effort, the rear portions get more involved in the so-called default network, where we're just kind of spacing out or daydreaming. And in this midline, there tends to be a very strong sense of me, myself, and I. Okay, There's a place for that. On the other hand, if you look to the outside, the more red blobs, those are networks, typically in the right side of the brain, although they're on the sides of the brain, more right than left, but the sides of the brain, lateral networks as opposed to medial or midline networks. These lateral networks are associated 
with open awareness, with stable, spacious, just letting be, present, breathing, present, now. Lateral networks. And in those lateral networks, there's much less sense of me, myself, and I. Mm -hmm. The good news is that ordinary people can typically, ordinary as in not trained, okay, can disengage from these midline networks and activate the lateral networks of stable, open, selfless awareness for about five seconds straight. <laughs> and then kawoosh, they're back. We've all experienced that kind of hijack, right? There we are, breath, breath. <laughs> Shopping list, <laughs> Safeway, cream, bills, money. My partner needs to make more money. Breath, breath, we're back. Okay, so we got this lateral, midline, lateral, midline, lateral. So being able to stabilize the neural substrates, the activation of these lateral networks at will is a good neurological foundation for steadiness of mind. So you can see that we're introducing a variety of ways that are neurologically informed to steady your attention. So to do this, there are a variety of ways to activate lateral networks, and momentarily I propose that we explore some of these, and, um, and in particular, a few. But any one of these will tend to take you out into those lateral networks, and increasingly you can do it, if you want, with some practice, uh, not just when you're sitting on the cushion or walking or in meditation, what have you, not just not during formal practice, but pretty much any time you want. So I thought we could do this, and then we'll come out of it and uh, have a couple announcements, and then we'll go into lunch. Okay? You want to try? So I'll do a little bit of guiding here, and it'll be uh, a little more quiet in this one than in the first round, the first meditative practice we did earlier today. So what you're trying to do here is move toward what's called open awareness distinct from focused attention. So focused attention, you're becoming really absorbed in some object of attention, such as five minutes of focus on the sensations of breathing, which we did earlier today. Here, it'll be a practice more of stabilizing a basic quality of being present while being open to whatever streams through awareness without being carried away by it, which is actually more challenging because it opens us to um, being tugged one way or another by content streaming through consciousness. Uh, and so it's important to be supported in being stably present, not swept away. So that's what we're aiming for here, open awareness that's stable. So I'll explore with you a few ways into that experience. So to begin with, I'll be quiet for a couple minutes while you just sort of gather yourself and you come to presence and find some anchor, such as the sensations of breathing or whatever else you like, that you can use as your personal buoy, using my example, to kind of stabilize attention. So coming into presence, being here and now.
staying present, but otherwise not needing to do any work, not needing to resist anything or chase after anything. What a relief, just resting. In a sense, letting time stream through you, staying present now and now, not trying to hold on to anything moving through, not needing to understand it, not needing to label it, not needing to connect it with anything else. Resting, relaxing as awakeness. not narrating your experience, not making a story about it, letting language pass away, abiding as a body breathing here and now. Finding a peacefulness and simply being. No jobs to do besides being.
On this foundation, then, we'll explore three suggestions for strengthening what you've already been strengthening in terms of these lateral networks. The first is to help yourself increasingly have a sense of your body as a whole so that all the sensations in the body appear in awareness in each moment as a kind of gestalt. And a way into this is to start with your torso and track the sensations of breathing in your chest, all of them appearing together in awareness at once, rather than the common quality of attention moving from sensation to sensation. So exploring first a sense of breathing, abiding as a body breathing, aware of all the sensations of breathing in the torso. And then when that's stabilized or when you want, expanding out to the nose and the throat, the head and the hips in terms of the sensations of breathing. And then moving all the way out to abiding as a body, as a whole. And helping this become increasingly stable. So I'll be quiet for a few minutes as you explore this.
the spotlight of attention widening to include all the sensations in the body, receiving the body, abiding as a whole body breathing. Continuing to abide is the whole body. And now, if you like, also exploring the second suggestion, which is to get a sense of awareness as like a vast space without edges, a boundless space through which any moment of sound or sight, taste, touch, smell, or thought appears and disappears, arises and passes away. Perhaps there might be a sense of the space of awareness like the sky through which a bird might pass or a cloud or even a flock of birds might persist for a while and then fly on. A panoramic vista or perspective, a bird's eye view on your own experience, as if you're observing it in a vast space. Not getting complex about this, just observing the fact that awareness is like a field in which contents of mind appear and disappear. You might have a growing sense of becoming increasingly transparent to the field of awareness or even moments of experiencing being awareness. And perhaps even a growing stability of being awareness, unidentified with the contents that appear and disappear within it. As soon as you turn awareness itself into a concept or a thing, it becomes a content in awareness. The trick is to keep falling 
back out of content again and again into all that remains, which is awareness itself. Finding a peacefulness and awareness. Less and less tugged and pushed by its contents.
And then moving into the third suggestion, abiding as awareness, increasingly disengaging from selfing, disengaging from I or me or mine, There is awareness that is linked to a particular body, seated in a particular chair. And there can also be a growing sense of the impersonal nature of awareness. A sense that this body and this awareness partake of a vast web of causes streaming through this moment. Causes that are not personal. Simply being no need for I or me or mine.
Rather than blab about that practice right now, I thought we could in a moment slide into lunch and uh, blab a little bit about it after lunch. And even not blab about the usual pre-lunch announcements, we'll do that after lunch. Feel very free to, as it were, practice through lunch. A couple comments. If you did not bring your lunch and you want to get a lunch, the nearest place is the Woodacre Deli and there are directions to it in the foyer. You're welcome to eat in this room or on the land. Personally, there's a, I have two recommended trails. There's one out to the right of the front door. It winds its way up the ridge here. It's really quite spectacular. And the other recommended trail is on the other side, essentially, of the Gratitude Hut, which is also recommended. And then that trail goes up the hill. And it, too, is quite spectacular. If you could please not go past the gate, because there's a retreat up there, that would be great. And um, how about if you don't mind uh, coming back at 10 minutes to 2? And in the afternoon, we'll go more into the factors of the jhanas, the deep, non-ordinary states of absorption, including two of my favorites, bliss and joy. So see you next at uh, 10 minutes to 2. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.